0: Psalm sixteen tonight. Psalm sixteen. I want to take just a few minutes and introduce uh, myself to you. My wife is Christy, and then uh, we also have Harley, who's fourteen. So we have three children, but we are so excited right now that we don't know what to do with ourselves because we have been in the adoption process for several years now, and we have just gotten the call a couple weeks ago. So we are in the process of adopting uh, two little twin boys. And they will be Titus and Jude. And so we are just so uh, thrilled. And so uh, they are in the NICU right now, born premature, and my wife is with them. So it's a great time for me and the boys to get away and allow some other family members to be able to visit with them. So I want to encourage you to be praying uh, for our family, their birth parents, for these precious uh, little boys. Pastor Jeff has been such an encouragement to us, his wife, to our family. I uh, first was connected to him because I was given the assignment of preaching at the uh, Church and Family Life Conference. I was given the assignment of preaching on the conscience because Pastor Jeff was not able to be there as my understanding, so I just began to plow through everything that he had preached on that subject and reached out to him, and he has just been so encouraging to us, and Chapel Library has really been a blessing uh, to us. The last time we visited our family was here last summer, and I went back to our church, and I said, you are not going to believe this. Just a, a, a normal congregation about our size at Reformation Baptist, and, and the way that God is using them to touch the nations uh, is just remarkable. So uh, I keep you busy at Reformation Baptist Church with orders, and we have very much benefited from this church and, uh, and from the ministry And it is a tremendous honor to be uh, with you and to see the fruitfulness from this congregation. Well, the title of my sermon this evening is Fullness of Joy and Pleasures Forevermore. I really enjoy preaching through the Psalms, preached through many of them. And Psalm 16 is the psalm that I just sense the Lord continuing to bring me to that delights my heart. Steve Lawson introduces this psalm by saying that no one is ready to live until first he is ready to die. Only in facing the reality of death with a living faith in God is a person prepared to live boldly and courageously for him, even in the face of troubling adversity. This was true in the life of David as recorded in Psalm 16 as he faced another life-threatening trial. This psalm is a psalm of confident trust in which the psalmist was able to live life to the fullest because he was gripped with a living hope in God beyond the grave. We don't know exactly what the context and the background of this psalm was. Scholars debate, maybe David, as we will see, is attributed as author, was possibly on the run for his life in the wilderness. Maybe he was facing the crushing pressures of the kingship, of of running a kingdom, Uh, we don't know for sure. But what we know with absolute certainty is that his hope and his trust are firmly fixed and anchored in God. And in this psalm, he is contemplating the joy, the pleasures, the delights, the satisfaction that belongs to God alone. In the face of death, he's gripped with this reliance upon God, He's in over his head. Have you ever been in a situation, maybe you are now, maybe you're coming out of a circumstance where you begin to realize, I am very much in over my head. Everything about this psalm shows that being the circumstances of David, but David is looking beyond the circumstances before him And we are going to see him prophesy of the resurrection and the glorification to come in Jesus Christ. Another said that when the faithful sing Psalm 16, they entrust themselves to the Lord and they foster their confidence and their contentment in his care. The psalmist is is centering the affections of the believer upon God. There are a variety of classifications and types of psalms. Psalm 16 is a psalm of confidence. It's also a messianic psalm. Later uh, will be prophetically cited by both Peter at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, also cited in Acts chapter 13 by Paul when he's at Antioch. Psalm 16 expresses a living hope a hope of eternal life that reaches beyond this life and the grave. But David is previewing that right now in his own overwhelming circumstances. If I were to summarize this psalm in one sentence, I would put it this way. God is displaying his glory by saving and satisfying a people in himself in such a way that no other person and no other thing can do. And God is reserving the psalmist and his people exclusively unto himself. We see an already but not yet experience. There's a hope, there's a confidence that's expressed in God that's available right here, right now. But at the same time, there's a fulfillment that's coming that will be established in Christ in the consummation of all things. It echoes Psalm 11, where David is seeking refuge in the Lord. And even as the wicked are bending their bows toward the upright, their arrogant arrows. But as in Psalm 23, 5, we see that David's cup is overflowing with the goodness of God, even, even in the presence of his enemies. So if you'll look with me, we'll survey the Psalm before we walk through phrase by phrase, David is counting his many blessings. In verse 5, we see the blessings of food and drink. We see the imagery in verse 5 of a lot, a portion, an inheritance. In verse 6, we see pleasant places. In verse 6, we'll see an inheritance, a delightful inheritance that God has given to him. In verse 9, a secure body. In verse 10, a grave. In verse 11, we see paths of life, in verse 11, he concludes with joy and with pleasure that this life cannot give and cannot take away. And ultimately, we see it all anchored in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Some translations would introduce this psalm with the words "a mictum of David, the word mictum being a bit mysterious, many other psalms bearing that title, but we know that it is clearly attributed to David. The New Testament in Acts 2, verse 25, Acts 13, verse 35, making that abundantly clear, where David is deeply delighting in God and depending on Him. I want you to notice with me, number one, as we just walk through the text and draw some applications as we go, first of all, I want you to notice the call to cling to God and to cherish His goodness to cling to God and cherish His goodness. This psalm is a prayer, maybe a prayer that you would make your own. Look with me in verse 1 and 2. He cries out, Preserve me, O God, for in Thee do I put my trust. O my soul, Thou hast said unto the Lord, Thou art my Lord. My goodness extendeth not to Thee. These two verses summarize the rest of the entire psalm. They're the door that lead us into the running themes. Look with me. He begins with verse 1 with the ordinary name for God, which refers to the strong and the mighty one. He continues in verse 2, you'll notice, with the holy name for God in small caps. He is Yahweh, the sacred, the personal name for our covenant-keeping, the faithful God of Israel. Maybe he would be reminded that he is serving the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and and Jacob. The same God who had delivered them and been faithful and kind to them, and he is trusting that he'll do the same unto him. The same God who has set his people apart as his own personal possession. Look with me again, the third name for God. In verse 2, Adonai, or Lord. Notice how thoroughly God-centered god centered every single verse is. It's interesting right out of the gate that the sovereign Lord he claims is not only the Lord, but his personal Lord. There's an identification, there's an intimacy that he shares with the Lord that I hope that you do as well. I want you to notice with me in verse 1, we first enter a request to God for salvation. A prayer for safety and help. He begins, preserve me, O God, the only one who can preserve our life. He's asking God quite practically to protect his life in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of danger that is well beyond his control. Friends, I was reflecting on the trip as we were riding down here just talking and listening and, and thinking and praying together. It is remarkable how much of life is beyond our control. Certainly, we have personal responsibility, but when tragedy hits, we're often reminded just how little we really are in control. And we spend so much of our life trying to be in control, and David is crying out to God, Lord, you alone, preserve me, O God. You are my help and my hope, my rescue and my savior. What is David experiencing in the original context? Well, we know in verse 4 that he's concerned that he would not fall prey to the schemes of idolatrous men, that he would not slip into the ways of the Gentiles. We know in verse 10 that he's concerned with death itself. It's a very severe circumstance. Similarly, in Psalm seventeen eight, we see the prayer, God, keep me as the apple of your eye. Lord, hide us under the shadow of your protective wings. Psalm 140, Psalm 141, God, guard me from wicked and violent men who halt me down, who hunt after my life, who scheme to ruin me with traps, the psalmist says. And so David is crying out similarly for deliverance from wicked men. But we move then, if you'll continue with me in Psalm 16, from a request to God for salvation. And he shifts now to a reliance upon God for security. He cries out to the Lord, for in you I put my trust. It's in you that I take refuge. You are my Lord. Throughout the Psalms, this is the refrain that we see. God is the only refuge. God is the place in which believers run and they hide when storms are brewing. God is where we go. It's our first instinct when we're under attack. In you I put my trust. There's debate about exactly what is intended when he says, Oh, my soul, you have said, but there is a firm reliance in obedience before the Lord. David is hitting the deck, and he's resorting to God For safety in the storm. It would be God and it would not be circumstances that would rule his life. And friends, for us tonight, it is not circumstances around us that rule our life. It is trust in our sovereign God and his goodness. That's where we turn. Look with me in verse 2. We move then to a resolve in God for satisfaction. He says, my goodness extendeth not to thee. There's a variety of of different translations here, but I believe what he's saying is, Lord, I don't have anything good apart from you. Everything good I have comes from God and there is no goodness within apart from him. Lord, my entire well-being is completely reliant and centered upon you. Psalm 3.8 says that salvation belongs to the Lord. And it says that his blessings rest on his people. Our only goodness is found in God. Matthew 11.26 asks a very provocative question. What good is it for a man if he would gain the whole world but forfeit his very own soul? Psalm 74, Whom I in heaven but you? And he concludes, there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. This is where we want to live. And this is where we find ourselves straying from, but this is the only safe place, and this is a, a place of satisfaction. James chapter 1 says that every good and perfect gift is from God. He does not change. He is trustworthy. And James 1 says that God has chosen to bring forth eternal life to his people, and he does that through the word of truth. I believe what the psalmist is indicating here is this. Everything that is good comes from God. And God created in the very beginning, and God called it what? But good. And on the flip side, there is, nothing, there is nothing truly good apart from God. But I'll tell you what we'll see next is a bit of a preview. What there are, however, are there are illusions of goodness. There are many counterfeits, many baits that appear to be good in the eyes of men, pleasing to our flesh. But every time they serve to be nothing but worthless counterfeits, They distract us from what is truly good in God. They deceive us with false promises. And in the end, they will destroy us. So here we are, opening in verse 1 and then 2 with a prayer. And in the rest of the psalm, David then reminds himself right where he began with the goodness and hope that he has In feasting on the Lord, I'm reminded that the medical doctor and Bible expositor, Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones, wrote such a deeply encouraging work on spiritual depression that has very much encouraged my heart. And he famously said that our biggest problem is that we spend too much time listening to ourselves to the lies, the deception, the counterfeits of God's goodness. And we spend so little time, too much time listening to ourselves, so little time talking to ourselves, reminding ourselves of what we have in the Lord, who we are before the Lord, and of His covenant promises and His guaranteed presence presence and all of God's attributes. And this is exactly what David will do through the rest of the psalm, but remind himself of what we all need to remember every single day. Number one, to cling to God and cherish his goodness. Has God been good to you, dear friend? God has been more kind to me than I would ever deserve in a thousand lifetimes. He has saved us He has satisfied us with His Son, and He withholds nothing that is truly good for us. Friends, God has been good to us. Number two, He shifts now to delight in the saints. Delight in the saints and deny the way of sinners. Look with me in verse 3. But to the saints that are in the earth and to the excellent. In whom is all my delight? Where is all of your delight? What is delightful to you? He says in verse four, their sorrows shall be multiplied that hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer nor take up their names unto my lips. We see first a twofold call. First of all, The call to delight in the excellency of the saints. You know, it's easy for us, the Bible says, to say that we love the church, that we love our brothers. What is harder to do is to actually live life in the context of an actual local church with people who tend to frustrate you, who are different from you, who have sinned just like you and personalities completely different from you. And in my years as a pastor, oftentimes I hear sweet church members say, we just want to be a New Testament church to which I have been known to respond by saying, which one? The church at Corinth or Laodicea or uh, any number of them with significant sin issues. Your church is maybe no different than mine that is no different than what we see in the scriptures. Churches are messy. And it is phenomenal to me that right here, all of my delight is where? In the people of God. Not abstract people that are out there somewhere that I might know and can safely from a distance say that I love, but actual Saints that I sit next to every Lord's day and hear from throughout the week, those are the ones in whom is all my delight. Delight in the excellency of the saints. These are the companions of the one whom God loves, the saints in the land. One commentator said that delight in God finds expression in a joyful acceptance of the saints. In other words, the one who delights in God is sure to delight in his people. Oftentimes in the community, I'll rub shoulders with people and end up in conversations and we'll do the whole back and forth to where we talk about what one another does, sir, ma'am, what... You know, sir, what do you do for a living, such and such? What do you do? I'm a pastor. You brace yourself, not knowing what the response will be. And oftentimes the response is, well, I've been at a church for a long time. I had a bad situation or circumstance, and I just don't want anything to do with that. To which I respond, I've been through church splits. I've been through unbelievably messy situations. But friends, where else are we going to go? This is the people of God. This is the place where God manifests his presence. This is the agent and means of worship and sanctification. God delights in his people, and so should we. With all of their shortcomings and all of my sins, they are the excellent ones in whom is my delight. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I mean, consider that the sovereign God of all creation, if you're in Christ, would delight in you, in his people, the excellent, the majestic, the noble, the glorious, the godly people of the land. Psalm 18, Psalm 35, Psalm 44, God rescues us not because of our own worthiness, but because he delights in showing mercy. In order to find delight, in order to find greatness, the world looks to the corporate world. The world looks to the entertainment industry. The world looks to Strong athletes, the world looks to powerful men. The world looks to fancy celebrities. They look to Wall Street. The world looks to the White House. The world looks for the Superdome, for anyone to admire. But God, of all the places, God looks to his people, and he takes joy in using them. All of heaven rejoicing. And it's so remarkable to me that when God saves us, he doesn't just let us in the back door of his kingdom begrudgingly by the skin of his teeth and then just tolerate us as we mosey about the kingdom unnoticed. But then all, all of our imperfections and sin, even in his discipline, disciplining and pruning, God delights in his people. What about you, dear friend? Do you see God's people, the people around you, as more of a hindrance to your own personal holiness? Or do you see God's people as a help to your own personal holiness? 1 Peter 2, 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. He says that we might proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into its marvelous light. Psalm 34, 7, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and your light, Do we see light? John chapter 6 says that in the eternal covenant of redemption, the Father has elected to save a people unto the Son and by the Spirit. Philippians chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul refers to the churches whom he is exhaustively laboring for their maturity in Christ. And he calls them his joy and his crown. I love how Calvin summarizes this section. He says, We ought therefore highly to value and esteem the true and devoted servants of God and to regard as nothing as of greater importance than to connect ourselves with their society. And this we will actually do if we wisely reflect and what the true excellence and dignity consist, and do not allow the vain splendor of the world and its deceitful pomps to dazzle our eyes. So delight in the excellency of the saints. I want you to notice with me now that there's a contrast that's set up here. And and to the contrary, we are to deny the idolatry of of sinners. The the result of the resolve of sinners, on the other hand, is just the opposite. It's sorrow. In Psalm 32, 5, David calls it like it sees it. He, He refuses to call the fool as noble or the scoundrel as honorable. And right here in Psalm 16, he says, the sorrows of those who run after another God, those will be multiplied. Ever since Genesis 3, Life in a fallen world, in the long run, means that the formula typically is this. In one way or another, idolatry leads to agony. Sin never produces what it promises. Sin does not subtract our sorrows. Friends, false worship multiplies our sorrows. Not satisfaction, but sorrows. They hasten or they run, meaning they're not just falling, but they're proceeding headlong. There's a sense maybe of urgency or a sense of excitement in their disloyalty to God, and their disregard for the truth. And we're being warned right here that consequences come in this life and, more importantly, eternally from a life of sin. He he provides two resolves right here in the text. The first resolve, he says, their drink offerings of blood. I will not offer. I will not pour out. There's an indictment here. Maybe it would refer to human sacrifices as we would see in Isaiah 57 or or maybe guilt that would be due to shedding blood in Isaiah 1. He refers to drink offerings. It may signify submission to a deity or maybe even a plea of deliverance from its wrath. We know that God's law would strictly prohibit against eating sacrificial blood. That would be abhorrent. So David is refusing refusing to offer blood, which God's law would govern for a prescribed manner of sacrificial atonement. And he refuses to lift it up in an act of pagan worship. the second resolve. He says, or take their name on my lips. The pagans would reverently speak the name of false gods, and the psalmist is refusing to use their names in worship, reverently in in prayer, which would be to spit on the very name of God, to use the name of another god particularly in a reverent way or an affectionate way, David concludes would be a token of treason to the one true God. And so he renounces all pagan worship. Exodus twenty-three thirteen says, Pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Joshua 23, 7, God warned the people not to take the name of false gods, to swear by them or to bow down by, by them. Their names are shameful. In Hosea two seventeen, in the midst of spiritual prostitution among God's people, the Lord would show mercy. He says, I will remove the names of the Baals from their mouth and remembered By name, no more. I love how James Montgomery Boyce asks, he says, do you find it uncomfortable to be with those who sin openly? Are you troubled by their values, shocked by their desires, repulsed by their blasphemies? Or are you at ease among them? If, like Peter, you have no difficulty warming your hands at the fire of those who are hostile to your master, it is because you are far from him. You had best get back to him before you deny him as Peter did. I believe the reflection point here that we must often ask ourselves is are we at home with those who live in rebellion against God? Are we at home in this world in that sense? It's interesting to me that in Psalm 73, the psalmist would struggle in just this way. He says, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. He began to envy the prosperity of the wicked. Lord, it just sometimes seems like the good guys always lose and the bad guys always win. Lord, why? does the sinner next to me always get the promotion and I get the suffering? God, they walk around, they strut around carelessly like prideful peacocks with anything they want, and it seems like there's no consequences in their rebellion against you. And he says, if I'm honest, I almost begin to envy the prosperity of the wicked. It began to glitter in such a way that my feet almost slipped. And then he says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. In other words, what in the world was I thinking? You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. Who do I have in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, Psalm 73 says, it is good to be near God. Is it good for you to be near God? I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. It's a wake-up call, a sobering reminder of the creeping power of unbelief in our life. That we could lose sight and begin to take the name of other gods on our lips in such subtle ways. And begin to envy the wicked and refuse to delight in God. Psalm 32 says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. So we see a call here to cling to God and cherish His goodness. We see a call to delight in the saints and deny the way of sinners, refuse to walk in the ways of the world. But I want you to look with me next. Number three. In verse 5 and following, consider the blessing of God and live securely in his word. Live securely in his word. Verse 5, the Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. I bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. My reigns also instruct me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. We're walking into an election year. We're living in a very unstable time. But friends, this is nothing new to the Christian church. Maybe some of you are walking through different seasons of life. You're seeing things change. The flowers that once bloomed are taking on different seasons. What do you do when everything around you seems unstable and seems so ever ready to change? You tether yourself to the only one who never changes, who is always firmly fixed, and you are unmoved in him. So we see the Lord's blessing on the believer. We see the response to the Lord with contentment, praise, obedience, faith. We shift from trusting in the Lord to delighting in his saints, refusing to swear allegiance to pagan gods, worldly ways, lifting up God's name, and now denying the cup of pagans and lifting up the Lord's cup. I want you to notice here with me in this next section, we see contentment in the Lord's gift. The words portion or lot or lines or inheritance. This is language that would remind us of God's sovereign allotment of the land to the 12 tribes of Israel following the conquest of Canaan. In Numbers 18, Deuteronomy 10, We see that Aaron and the priests were allotted no portion of the land. And why is that? Because God himself was to be their portion and their inheritance. The word portion could refer to the allotment of land or it could be used of a ration of food. But either way, the idea is God's provision in their life. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. And how much more does our Father in heaven feed us and provide for us and heaven do for us than we would have ever done for ourselves? The word lot could refer generally to the land. It could refer to one's part in life. He's saying that he is secure in contentment. And the reason why he is secure in that contentment is because he is acknowledging that God is responsible for what he has. And it can't be uprooted and it can't be cast out. In verse 5, verse 7, verse 8, we see this covenant-keeping God. And we see this expression of satisfaction with God and with God's providential provision in a person's life. My flesh and my heart may fail, Psalm 73, but God is the strength of my heart, and my portion forever. Psalm 119, the Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. In Psalm 116, rather than lifting up his cup to the name of idols, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Lamentations chapter three, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Do you see how much the psalmist is talking to himself, reminding himself of where his goodness really lies? Deuteronomy 32.9 says that God's portion is his people. The prophet Jeremiah says that God is our portion and his people are his inheritance. God has providentially marked out for him and for us pleasant places. And it calls for thankfulness. God's covenant blessings, His sustenance are ours. Friends, what does Ephesians chapter 1 teach us? But that in Christ, we have been blessed with the heavenly places. We have been regenerated. We have been raised with Christ unto eternal life. God has withheld no thing that is truly good from your life and from mine. I want to ask you tonight, a good midpoint time of reflection as we look at the word and then we look at the Lord and our own souls. Are you content with the arrangements that God has provided for you? Are you content with the arrangements that God has provided for your life? Are you content with God? I have found in my own soul and I have found in my years of pastoral ministry, that oftentimes that discontentment with one's circumstances in life very well could be undergirded by an underlying discontentment with God himself. And we say that we're discontent with our circumstances, but I wonder sometimes if truly we were honest, we're discontent with God. How do we fight this discontentment? How do we fight sin? How do we fight a captivation with sin and any sort of God substitute? We see God as our all-sufficient joy. We fight against sin by seeing Christ as more glorious than anything sin would ever have to offer. Again, Calvin said that he who has God as his portion is destitute of nothing which is requisite to constitute a happy life. Contentment in the Lord's gift. God has us where he has us for his glory. And he's working in our life, whatever that season may look like, to sanctify, to purify in that process. Look with me in verse 7. We move now to praise for the Lord's guidance. David is praising God for his counsel, and his heart is meditating on the rich counsel of God. I bless the Lord, he says, who's given me counsel in the night. He says that his heart is instructing him, his reins, the core of his being. He's being schooled face-to-face And the hard facts of life. In 1 Samuel 23 and 2 Samuel 5, in the midst of decisive acts in battle, the Lord instructed David in the way he should go. In Psalm 42 8, we see that there's no need to fear or worry because the Lord commands us in love during the day and he is with us in the night. James 1 5 says, If anyone lacks wisdom, ask God, we go to God's Word. Our minds are formed by His wisdom. Our consciences are shaped by His Word. And our hearts remind us of God's counsel through meditation day and night. A God-centered, biblically informed mind is now imp- applying the truths of God's Word to the circumstances of His life. He's blessing the Lord for his counsel and us for his word. Look with me in verse 8, we see security in God in the Lord's presence. With every verse there's an entire treasure to an earth. He says that he has set the Lord always before him. He says because he is at my right hand I will not be moved. I will not be shaken. One old scholar said, it's to eye God in everything. To eye God in everything. This is the mark of a holy life. He's living in continual awareness of the presence and power of the Lord. Through laughter and tears, through tragic circumstances and mundane days, he has set the fear of God before his face. And he knows that God is near, God is able, and God is willing. Psalm 30, verses 5 through 7 teach us that sorrow may endure through the night, but joy comes with the morning. His favor renews, his anger subsides. Psalm 119, 30, David says that God's rules are before him and he's chosen the way of faithfulness. Psalm 109, Psalm 110, God is at the right hand of the needy one to save him when others attack his life. You'll notice with me in verse 8, this right hand, is the place of support. It's a place of power. It's a place of protection. And it's this place that leads the psalmist and us this evening to confident assurance in the Lord. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand, the psalmist says over and over. And he says in verse 8, I shall not be moved. I won't be shaken. He's firmly fixed in the fear of God. And he's refusing to to trust in his own resources and he is truly he's choosing to refuse the fear of man. The Bible says that the fear of man is a snare. But God alone is our rock, our salvation, our fortress. Psalm 62 says, "We shall not be greatly shaken." We will not be shaken. And with what follows here in Psalm 16, Peter will quote these very words in his sermon on Pentecost. And we'll turn there in just a few moments, but in Acts 2, as a sneak preview, the Bible says that David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Friends, we are starting to get a sneak preview that there are greater realities at stake than even we might have realized so far in this text and in our own lives. Peter said that God had chosen to display his glory through Christ and even through the actions of evil men who would slay Christ on the cross, and he would be raised to life in a resurrection. He would defeat sin and death, And Peter would say that David would know that these statements in Psalm 16 could not ultimately be true just of David. And the reason is because David would die. David would see corruption, as we will see in a moment, in a sense, but it would be through David's descendants that God would provide the one of which this whole psalm foretells. Christ was truly the one at God's right hand. Acts 2, 24 and 25. Jesus Christ would rule all things by his power. God would raise Jesus Christ to life that he might rule all things in him. Look with me in verse 9. The final call before us in this text. We see the call to cling to God and cherish his goodness to delight in the saints and deny the way of sinners, to consider the blessing of God and live securely in his word. And now we see the call to be glad in God and trust his goodness. This now is the best that has finally come. Look with me in verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope, for thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. And then the phrase from which the title of the sermon comes, in thy presence is what? Fullness of joy. At thy right hand, there it is again, there are pleasures forevermore. The gladness of God is consuming the soul of the psalmist. It's the greatest treasure of all of eternity. Look with me in verse 9 as we unearth it. We begin with gladness in God. My heart is glad He says, Rejoiceth, my flesh shall rest in hope. This threat of death that's confronted the psalmist is now met with the promise of life. David is confident that his soul and his body ultimately are safe before God. His joy is rooted in his security in the Lord. So he's glad in God. God has given him a gladness that even, listen to me, even the grave can't take away. Look with me in verse 10. Now we see the bottom of this barrel, gladness in God, but now I want you to notice resurrection in Christ. You will not leave my soul in hell or let your Holy One suffer corruption. We live in a day and age when fear and anxiety cripple and even paralyze so many believers. We're not exempt. I see this in my pastoral ministry, maybe as much as anything else, the plague and the power of fear and anxiety in our lives. And if this is you, take heart. This is throughout the Psalms and throughout the Scriptures. For the Christian, fear and anxiety come from living, I believe, in a false perception of reality. A false perception of reality. It's the Christian trying to operate in a reality devoid of God, filled with unbelief. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We've never seen as we do today, so many people paralyzed by fear and especially the fear of death. I was sharing over dinner one of the most powerful moments of my life at least over the last few years. We have a dear brother in our church or we did a couple and I did his funeral about this time last year. He was 80 years old. He had been a believer, I think, for about 60 or more years. Walked faithfully with the Lord. He was a medical doctor and one of the most humble men that I've ever met. God used this man to mark my life. I speak with his wife regularly to encourage her. And if there were anyone solid and strong in the faith, it was this man. Such a blessing to our church. And the last time that I met with him about this time last year was about a week or two before he passed. And I'll never forget looking into his eyes, staring into his soul. And I said, Dr. Bob, how are you? Well, I'm doing all right. You, you know, they're in and out, driving me crazy with all of this equipment. No, Dr. Bob, how, how are you? And he began to tear, and he said, to be honest with you, Last 48 to last two to three days have been some of the most difficult hours of my life. I have sensed the power of the evil one. I have sensed doubting over the assurance of my salvation. I have sensed a wrestling, knowing that I am facing death. But he looked at me with the most confident and humble face, and he said, But I want you to know that God has brought me now at the end, right where I started at the beginning, clinging to Jesus Christ. What else do we have in the face of death? And he would face death with gladness in his soul. And what a beautiful funeral that was, and what a marvelous witness to the gospel that it was. The word sheol here used of the grave or or the destination of the wicked in hell. In life, David is clinging to God's security in verses five and six and in death, his protection in verse 10. When David dies, God will not abandon his soul. Look with me in your Bibles in Acts chapter two. Acts chapter two. David is confident that God will not leave him when he enters the realm of the dead, nor will he be left for dead. In one sense or the other, David knew that God had promised him life and that the world of death would not be his home. God didn't abandon David's soul, and God did not forget his life and his body. But the point here ultimately is that there would need to be one greater than David to fulfill the promises before us, to walk in the shoes molded here in Psalm 16. Your holy one would not face corruption. Immediately, I believe David is trusting in the deliverance of God from death and destruction while also pointing to a truly holy one whom the Father would not allow to remain in death and destruction. And quoted twice here in the New Testament. Look with me in Acts chapter 2, verse 25, and we'll read to verse 33. He says in verse 25, For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, That I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, nor or neither will thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. There it is. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried. And and we see here that he's with us to this day. And now he's explaining. We understand a bit more in light of the New Testament. Look with me in verse 30. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, That of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. Look with me in Acts chapter 13 again. Again we see in the book of Acts in verses 34 and we'll read through verses 39. This text quoted and further explained. In Acts chapter 13, verse 34, we read, And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Wherefore he saith also in another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. There it is. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on his sleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from all things, from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. This man, Jesus Christ, God has raised from the dead. David longed in Psalm 16 for what only Jesus Christ could provide, in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 13, ultimately in eternal life. Life beyond the grave in the secure presence of God, with fullness of joy, with pleasures forevermore. It is Christ here ultimately who is before God. He is unshaken, He is rejoicing, and He is secure through life and through death. And because of his resurrection, all who are tethered to him through repentance and faith in Christ, too, share in the covenant promises. Without maybe fully seeing the implication of what he's saying by the Spirit, David is proclaiming the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The hope of resurrection and gladness of eternal life. He says in Acts 13, the holy and sure blessings of David. Those are ours in Jesus Christ. Now, the truth is David would actually, in a sense, see corruption. And therefore, his Psalm 16 reference would ultimately be true of this greater David, who would not see corruption. And because Christ resurrected from the dead and from the grave, David's confidence in eternal life would not be in vain. So fully, it's only Christ who would not see corruption, but ultimately, ultimately, David wouldn't see corruption in a sense either because the third day would not find Jesus in corruption but in glorification. And though decayed, David too would rise again. So David faced death without resurrection, but Christ faced death and was raised therefore he and we too would be raised in a living hope romans chapter 8 says that we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our resurrected redemption in christ acts, acts chapter 13 says all of this is for quote everyone who believes that would find forgiveness of sins Friends, I love how Thomas Brooks so well summarizes what I believe is being taught here. Hope can see heaven through the thickest clouds and David through the thickest clouds and the darkest night is seeing heaven and he is unmoved. And that is only possible in Christ. And finally, we end with what we know of as verse 11, life through the gospel. Psalm 16, if you'll turn back with me to verse 11, he says, show me the path of life. This is the one who's seeking to walk in truth. So ultimately following death in verse 10, now we end with a reference to life, to eternal life. Proverbs 10, 24 says the path to life requires instruction. Proverbs 12, 28 says it's righteousness. Proverbs 15, 24 says that it turns us from death. He says in verse 11 that in in your presence, there is fullness of joy. Joy running through the very being of God, being the fruit of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. The culmination of all of our salvation in glory being the perfection of our joy in God. You know, there's a sense in which, I believe that there is a sense in which when all of life is done, everybody gets what they want. And those who have lived their lives in rebellion against God and refusing the mercies that he so freely offers and provides in Jesus Christ forever get exactly what they've always wanted, life apart from God, but they get it in a way that they would never imagine. Under his curse and wrath forever. But those who all their lives stumbling all the way to heaven just just want God and want God more than we want God. Does that make sense? I want to want him more than I actually want him. And when we die, what we get forever is God. When we, when we, when we die, the, what we get for all of eternity is God. And we get all of him and he, he gets all of us. In pure and perfect holiness, the center point of heaven, the longing of the Christian, the source of our joy is the presence of God. You and I know that joy is not some fickle feeling of happiness that fluctuates with our circumstances. Joy is a fixed delight in God who never changes. And I believe what we find in God's Word, Psalm 42, Psalm 43, many places, is the psalmist not experiencing that joy. But what does he do? He yet looks to God for a future joy that God would give, and he eagerly awaits, and he looks to God for what only he can provide. Moses would say in Exodus 33, Lord, I don't want to take a step apart from your presence. If you don't go with us, I don't want to go. In Numbers chapter 6, we see the priestly blessing that would include blessing and security and the peace and favor of God on our lives. Is this not what we desire? In Psalm 21 6, God blesses the king and he makes him glad with the joy of his presence. He trusts God, he's immovable. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And finally, look with me in Psalm 16. He says at your right hand, at God's right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. We come full circle. Those pleasant places in verse 6 now finally find their final destination in verse 11, pleasures forevermore. Derek Kidner summarizes the refugee of verse 1 finds himself an heir in his inheritance beyond all imagining and all exploring. He's wholly satisfied in God. He refuses the way of sinners. He rejects the fear of man and he lives in the fear of God. God, have mercy on my soul. So, in summary, what is God doing in Psalm 16? I believe that God is displaying his glory by saving and satisfying a people in himself in such a way that no other thing and no other person can. C.S. Lewis has famously said that human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God to make him happy. How many years have you spent, have I spent trying to find something other than God? And God has said that we are made for him. He has made us for himself. And so often we trade the idea of a good life, of a nice toy, of the next experience for the infinite and ultimate joy found only in God. Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Count your many blessings. He forgives all your iniquity. He heals all your diseases. In one way or the other, He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, and He satisfies you with good. I am reminded in this moment Myself, as I remind you. Friends, what more could we possibly ask for that God has not richly already provided in promise through Jesus Christ? Another said, Heaven's joys are without measure, mixture, or end. Our souls are satisfied in Him alone. So rest in Christ. Rejoice in Christ. Cling to God. Cherish his goodness. Delight in the saints and deny the way of sinners. Consider the blessing of God. Live securely planted in his word. Be glad in God and trust his goodness. Let's pray together. Father, you have been so kind to us. We thank you on this ordinary Wednesday evening for the saints here gathered at Mount Zion Bible Church. Father, I pray that you bless them. I pray that you would open theirs and my and our church's eyes more and more to the richness of Christ, to the destruction of sin in this world, We pray Christ would be before us day and night and throughout all of our everyday duties. Father, we thank you for this church, for the members, for the families, for the ministry here at Chapel Library. Father, thank you for the Pollard family, the blessing that they've been in my life, in our church, and so many. Father, I pray that you would guard this church. I pray that you would sweeten their gladness in you. We pray that you would show mercy in your discipline as our hearts stray as they often do and begin to envy the ways of the world. Lord, in your mercy, would you you draw us back? Would you open our eyes? Would you keep us from despair and destruction? And Father, would you help us to be faithful to the mission for which you put us here? And we pray that you would make it fruitful to the glory of Christ. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Amen. It has been